Welcome to Son of a Preacher Man with Jonathan Martin, a podcast all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. This is a sermon on Easter Sunday at the table in Oklahoma City, where Jonathan is now the lead pastor of this community. We hope you enjoy. We can't get enough of the resurrection text on Easter. Because this is kind of the Super Bowl for Christians. This is the main event. This is what we're here for. And I do want to say to each of you just how special it is for all of you to be here. Uh, You know, just a couple months ago, we didn't even know this was happening. This is so organic. It's so spirit-led. Tonight, we've got the curtains open, just looking out in the city. It It just feels magical somehow to me and just the sense that God has brought us all here together. And my friends and leadership here, what a family it feels like that we are. And I'm just really grateful. So I could go on. I don't want to do that, but I could really go on because I, uh, I feel a lot of love here tonight. So thank you, for, thank you for coming. John 20 is where we're going. I didn't dream that. We did just read from Luke, didn't we? Yeah, John 20. So we'll get, it's a little resurrection sampler, if you would. A um, little resurrection platter. John chapter 20, beginning with verse 1, says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter. Keep in mind that this is John's gospel. I love how self-referential John is in John's gospel. And the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, in case you're unclear, that would be John himself. The one whom Jesus loved said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple who speaks of himself in the third person outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, in case you just forgot that I told you that I outran Peter, just in case anybody forget, also went in. And he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But I really want to focus our attention on this part, these next couple of verses. My favorite post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, Why are you weeping? 
Whom are you looking for? Supposing him, and this is important, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And that's when Jesus said to her, and this is her moment of waking up when he calls her by her name, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went then and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them all the things that he had said to her. Let's pray one more time. God, I pray tonight specifically for my friends who are here, some of whom are still looking into a tomb. Many of us who have come back to some dead places over and over again, looking for something green and hopeful, looking for some kind of sign of life. Yet there has been no resurrection. And the fact that today is Easter on the calendar doesn't make anything magically better. But we've come back to the tomb one more time. We've looked into the dead place. We've come staring into the abyss one more time. I pray tonight you would open us to the possibility of resurrection. You would open us to the possibility of the surprise of resurrection. For the ways in which you might appear in ways that we would not expect really for the gift of recognition, the gift of sight, to see the ways in which you may have appeared already. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to the people of God. Amen. So this text starts with Mary peering into the tomb. Surely this is not the first time she's looked into the tomb. She's been here for a number of days. Um, footnote to the passion stories in all the Gospels is that, you know, we even talk about how the disciples all fled Jesus. They actually did not all flee when Jesus goes through his suffering and torment and crucifixion. The male disciples fled. The women stuck around. They've, they've been here. They were here. Mary now is keeping watch over the tomb. This is surely not the first time she's peered inside of it but some of us know exactly what it is to look into the tomb and to see nothing staring back. Some of us know exactly what it is to peer down, to bend down, and to see nothing, to look again a second, a third time, and to see nothing. But then all of a sudden, Mary looks again, and a strange thing happens. We have the angels who appear to her. Finally, she turns around. Of course, this is the crux of the story. She's face-to-face, mano-a-mano with Jesus himself. But she doesn't know that Jesus is Jesus. She thinks that she's talking to the gardener. And for me, this text, in many ways, even for the last few years, has kind of become everything because I just think that, like, 
we spend so much of our lives, or at least I've spent so much of my life looking for God in a particular way, where I'm always wanting for God to show up, praying for God to show up, to do something different, to do something else. And I think so much of what Easter is all about is that resurrection has always been a different way of seeing the world as it already is. Where it's not so much a different miracle that we need, where it's not so much something else that we need God to do, but for our eyes to be open to see what God is doing already. Mary is eyeball to eyeball with Jesus, but she doesn't recognize Jesus because Jesus comes in a form that seems ordinary to her. And there's so much going on here, I can't even stand it. I mean, he looks like a gardener, which for in our moment, I think is heavy with so many implications. You think about the people in our culture, in our context, who do garden. You think about refugees and immigrants. And by the way, this is beautiful too. The very fact that gardener, well, let, let, me, let me back up here for just a second. I think part of what's happening here, you know, and, and maybe this is not going to be new news for anybody else here, uh, but this is still kind of blowing all my circuits and has changed the way I've read the Easter story for the last few years. I always knew the Easter story is about Jesus rising from the dead because, well, yeah, you know, I got that part. I did get that far in Sunday school. But here's the part I didn't get. That the reason throughout the Gospels that you have all these apocalyptic signs and images, have you ever noticed that in all of the Gospels in their way, um, that from the crucifixion of Jesus on to Easter Sunday, there are all these strange apocalyptic signs. So like when Jesus is killed, you've got an earthquake and there's lightning and there's thunder and all the kind of Mount Sinai kind of stuff. You have that stuff happening. Then next thing you know, and this is actually in the text, this is in Luke, there are dead people getting up and walking around Jerusalem. Anybody ever read, read this before? Like, I think this is just brilliant. No one ever talks about this at Easter. And I just think that's so tragic. Like we're all like pastels and... Easter bunnies, folks, if you take an image like that more seriously, it will radically change your design motif for Easter because instead of pastels and bunnies, you will have something like a George Romero zombie film. It is right out of the walking dead. You've just got zombie people walking around Jerusalem. Why does the text go to such great length? Not just to say that Jesus has risen from the dead, but now here are all these freaky things that are happening. It's like reality is flickering, like a film reel. It's like another reality is kind of being imposed. And we're, it, it's like we're, we're, we're glimpsing of the world, something of the world from a different point of view. I think the idea is this, and this has been the idea from the very beginning. The story of resurrection, the story of Easter, is not just about Jesus rising from the dead. The point and the reason we have all these apocalyptic signs gestures towards this. It's not just about the resurrection of one man from the dead, but rather through the resurrection of Jesus, something has been altered in the cosmos. Something has changed in the universe itself. Something has happened in the created order that's not just about Jesus, it's about everybody, it's about everything. The idea is that what happened to Jesus might one day happen to all of us. So Paul will use this wonderful language to talk about Jesus, that he is the firstborn of the dead. I love that language. Firstborn of the dead. The first in a long line of people 
who are going to rise from the dead. Well, we all know that in the natural order, people don't rise from the dead. That's not how the world works. But see, that's the point, is that the Easter story is not just about one man rising. This is the reset button for the entire cosmos. And that's another thing I love about the fact that Jesus appears to Mary to be a gardener. That's not accidental. And man, like, like go, go like even Bible 101 here. What you, gardening? What do you know about a garden in the Bible? The Garden of Eden. Because the idea here is that now a new Adam has come. This is a new creation. This is a new, whole new order that has begun. This is the first day of the new creation. All the old rules have been thrown out. Everything has changed. And yet Mary is standing eyeball to eyeball with Jesus, and she doesn't know it. That's why my prayer these days over and over again is for the gift of recognition. Because I'm convinced that God is already showing up in all kinds of ways that I am just blissfully unaware and what I need is not for God to do something else. This is the story of my life. God's already done all the stuff. I'm just not aware that on this side of the resurrection that divinity already infuses everything. That the whole world, I love how I'm preaching right now, if y'all don't mind me enjoying myself for a minute. The whole world is enchanted with resurrection. It's enchanted. God is everywhere. God is all over. Our senses have just not been opened and sharp. Our eyes just haven't been opened to see the ways that God is here already. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're hoping for. That's what Easter is all about, is having our eyes open to see the ways that resurrection life is at work already. So many times that we're praying for answers, praying for God to do something else, but it's already right here. And I would be remiss, I think, if I didn't say this that I do think it's not supposed to be just unique to the John 20 story, that Jesus, that Mary rather recognizes Jesus in the face of the gardener. Because I do think the idea, how many times does Jesus himself teach? Think about something like Matthew 25. You know, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done unto me. Did you visit me in prison when I was poor, when I was needy, when I was sick, all that kind of thing. The idea is Christ is continuing to reveal himself in the faces of anyone around us who's marginalized, who's oppressed, who's hurting, who's vulnerable. That's where we see the face of Jesus now. This is why a footnote, oh man, I don't man, know where some of these riffs are coming from right now. I hope this is all right. I feel like a lot of people get real angsty with philosophical questions. Where is God? If you're sitting around like in a classroom somewhere, it's sort of an ivory tower kind of scenario asking where God is, I can tell you why you're not finding God. <laughs> you're not hanging out in the places where God hangs out. <laughs> a lot of people ask a lot of wonderful existential questions about where God is and what God is, et cetera, et cetera. Go to the places where the Gospels make it clear Jesus will conspicuously be found. If you don't want to be known among the brokenhearted, if you, want to be, if you don't want to be around the oppressed, you are in no danger of an appearance of the resurrected Jesus. But God's so much closer than you. God is so much closer than we think in the faces of real people. Christ is still appearing in this way. Christ is still making himself known. And yet the thing I think I love most about this text, this is really what I want to land just the last few minutes that we have. I won't take too much time. 
but I love this so much. And it used to be the part of this text that I liked the least because I thought it seemed harsh. Mary Magdalene, unlike the male disciples, has stuck around. By the way, we do have plenty of evidence in antiquity, in, not in so much in the Gospels, but like in early church literature. The disciples did resent Mary Magdalene, not because there was necessarily an assumption there was something salacious, but they definitely thought she had a closeness that they resented. And, you know, there's like, my deal is like, okay, so the women stuck around when everybody else fled, and now she's been there tending to the body of Jesus and looking into the tomb. And the very first thing that Jesus says to her after speaking her name, like she's been grieving out of her mind with sadness for three days. And the next thing Jesus is going to say is, don't touch me now. Don't cling to me. It just, I always thought that just felt so harsh. I'm like, Jesus, do you not think you can give this woman a hug? Like, would a hug really be so out of bounds here right now? Woman is stricken near death with grief. She's out of her mind, sad. And you say, don't touch me. Don't cling to me. Don't hold on to me, Mary. And yet I think there's something in this that we need to see and that we need to hear. See, Mary, before the resurrection, knew a Jesus that she could cling on to. There was a Jesus that she was able to touch in that way. Now, Jesus, in his resurrected form before the ascension, is not going to be present to Mary in the way that he was before. He's now coming to her in a different form, and this text has a lot to do with form, the form in which God comes. And I'm convinced part of what this text has to say to us is that, you see, here's the thing. Whenever we attempt to cling, whenever we attempt to hold on, what is clinging ever? Clinging is always a form of control. Holding on is always a form of control. If you've ever been in a relationship where you were afraid you were going to lose it, or you've ever been afraid that you were going to lose a hold of your kids, what do you do? You cling. We've all done this before. We, we were, felt like we were afraid of losing somebody or something. So you, you battened down and you held them down and you tried to just hold them right there. And I'm just asking you all the question, how has that worked out for you so far? doesn't work out particularly well. Brother Sting taught us years ago that if you love somebody, anybody remember this? Set them free. Clinging is always a form of control. A God you can handle is an idol that you can control. And what Jesus is saying here to Mary, I think in effect is, Mary, you're not going to be able to know me the way that you knew me before. You're not going to know me the way you remembered me. The only way you can know me is the way you can know me now. You don't get to know me the way you knew me before. You don't get to cling on to the memories. You don't get to cling on to the past. Because oftentimes, I think what we call, see, this came to me, honestly, in uh, the very worst moment of my life. Because when I felt like I was completely unraveling, I remember going through a moment where I was desperately looking for something to cling on to. And I did try to cling to a number of things and nothing was working. 
And I remember having a moment where I was actively thinking about this. I was like, I felt like I felt myself losing the grip. I remember thinking like, what do I have left to cling on to? And I heard inside of me, because I think this comes from where I come from, a re, in a real churchy voice, I, I heard inside myself, well, at least I can still cling to Jesus. Because you can always cling to Jesus. <laughs> that's, that's how it sounded. Because I'm a Pentecostal church boy from the South. It's always good and right to cling to Jesus. Unless Jesus looks at you directly and says, don't cling to me. I always find to hold on to Jesus until Jesus says, don't hold on to me anymore. Because I think often even clinging on to Jesus, what that really looks like is we cling on to an idea about Jesus. We cling, our, what we, our clinging to God actually means clinging on to an idea about God that really isn't serving us well anymore. And one of the things that makes God both dangerous and wonderful is that God is so present in this moment that he will not allow us to reach back into the past and cling on to nostalgia and sentimentality and have rose-colored glasses for a world that probably didn't really exist anyway. I think about, I talked about that sometime in the last few weeks, I think. I don't remember what I said when these days. Everybody has some version of the good old days that didn't really exist. The good old days were not that good. First of all, who were they good for? That's one question. But beyond all that, even beyond like the like equality situation, we just tend to look at the past through like rose-colored glasses. We remember things better. <laughs> the one time I planted a community before, I remember after things started to grow a little bit and change, and we were never like a mega whatever. We weren't, it was nothing sexy. But I remember people would talk about the good old days when it was pure and it was real and like back when we were a real church and then the good old days when God was moving. I was like, I I spent hours every week setting up pipe and drape and cleaning bathroom. Like, what, what good old days are you talking about? Those days were hard. <laughs> no, I, I don't even know what I'm, y'all are like, why don't you just go to therapy right now and not tell us these things? The good old days rarely exist in that form anyway. I just, what I'm trying to say for our purposes right now is I think often even clinging to God, clinging to Jesus for us means clinging on to a form of God. It's a, it's a kind of control. And what God wants, what Easter is about, what resurrection is about, is letting go of any and all form of control. Even and especially our control of who and what we think God is and what God ought to be doing. And how we think the universe ought to run. And it's scary. It's really scary. I really am almost done. I, I talk about my past a lot growing up in very Pentecostal churches. Some of y'all know about this because it's, I mean, it's Oklahoma. And when I was a kid, I spent many, many hours going down to the altar because it was a very big deal in our world to, to pray for the Holy Spirit. And what we meant really was, you know, it was all about speaking tongues. You didn't have the Holy Spirit until you spoke in tongues. And I was desperate to speak in tongues. So I spent many hours around the altar praying for the gift of tongues. And I was very serious about it. I was very intense. And I would have my eyes shut. And I just remember, like, I thought about this so much here again in the last few weeks. I just remember so vividly having an old, Pentecostal brother in my ear who was literally screaming, hold on, brother. He's got to hold on. I want to speak in tongues. He's telling me, hold on. And I promise you that exact same moment, I had a sweet, dear Pentecostal sister in my ear, and she's screaming in the other ear, let go, brother. Brother, he's got to let go. And I remember just there with my hands up and just thinking like, how on earth am I supposed to hold on and let go at the same time? 
The truth is, holding on actually is not all that hard. Holding on is what we do naturally. Letting go, letting go is always the hard thing. I mean, we always have to unpry our fingers. When I flew in here this afternoon, I fly just enough to where flying doesn't scare me that bad. But when I hit enough turbulence, I always cling onto the seat like this if it gets rough enough. Because, you know, that makes you safer. That helps you secure the plane. Of course, it doesn't do any good. But it's instinctual, right? It's instinctual to hold on. It's never our instinct to let go. And what I'm telling you is that the invitation of Easter is open your hands, open your heart, let go. Take your hands off the steering wheel. Stop needing to be in control. We've never been in control anyway. That's the thing. It's just recognize the world for how it really is. It's always been wilder than we thought. I think I, I really am done. I think uh, I've said this three times. It's like a Southern Baptist sermon up in here right now. There's four closings. The... Um, there's such a fine line, right, between when you've got your hands in the air and you say, whoa, and when you've got your hands up in the air on a roller coaster and you say, wee. And I really feel like I'm in a season in my life when I'm trying to move from the whoa to the wee. I'm not in control anyway. I'm not in charge. So why not just let go? Let life happen to you. Let God happen to you. Let resurrection life happen to you. It's all around. And my prayer specifically for you tonight is that God would open up your eyes to be able to see the ways in which the resurrected Jesus is at work already. God's already here. Isn't that beautiful? All these things so often that I think we need to change and all that really needs to change is our perspective, our perception to see a world already altered by resurrection. Thank you for listening today. More from Jonathan Martin. Go to jonathanmartinwords.com and follow him on Instagram and Twitter. If you want to support this podcast and help us keep going, go to patreon.com slash sonofapreacherman and we appreciate your support. Remember, no matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast will help you come to know the love that calls you by your true name. God bless.